welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Toole, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. In this episode, we are joined by William Tinkup, president and editor-at-large of Recruiting Daily. He serves on the board of advisors for more than 15 companies and is considered to be a top HR thought leader. He's written over 250 HR articles, spoken at over 350 HR and recruiting conferences, and he's conducted over 1,300 HR podcasts and webinars. It was a great pleasure having him on the podcast to discuss 2020 HR trends and some predictions on 2021 and beyond. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please take a few seconds and leave us a review. Enjoy the episode. All right, William, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great. And hey, as a way of kind of getting started, if you wouldn't mind just telling our audience about yourself and what you do and where you came from. Sure. William Tincup. I'm the uh, president and editor of Large at Recruiting Daily. I've been studying HR and recruiting technology uh, for over 20 years. And I came up through marketing and I fell in love with recruiting and HR, uh, especially HR. Uh, I just fell in love with, you know, HR people know all the dark recesses of an organization. They know the darkness. They know the sexual harassment investigations and the pay inequities and all the dark stuff that happens in HR, but yet they're still hopeful by and large. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I love that. So I've been on the speaking circuit for years. I've written a lot of podcasts, I've you know, done all that stuff. And, uh, but I love HR and recruiting technology. And it's where I spend most of my time is either talking to practitioners about, you know, vendor selection or talking to practitioners or talking to vendors about go to market. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I mean, I've, I follow you. There's so much content, so much to cover. Uh, you know, an easy way to start today is around COVID. Uh, we seem to talk about it a lot, right? So in your in your profession, what have you seen in, in the recruiting world or HR world, is it, you know, what's changed through COVID and then maybe moving into 2021, what you see as some of the big changes? I think, you know, what the, you know, we'll deal with the, the, the positive sides or the, the sober linings of COVID is it's sped up a lot of things that we probably knew that we could do. Take something as benign as video interviewing. You know, video interviewing has been around um, conceptually and even the technology has been around for 12 years, maybe longer. Yet there was still some reticence, like whether or not people would talk about it publicly. There was still hiring managers that maybe didn't want to do things through video or candidates that didn't want to do things through video. And, uh, and you know, once COVID hit, everyone's doing things through video. And uh, so all that reticence or, you know, whatever, um, all went to all went aside really quickly. And people just said, hey, we still got to hire. We still got to interview candidates. And candidates are like, well, we still got to interview. So um, we adapted quickly, which I think is a, a great credit to HR and to recruiters and also employees and candidates um, that, that we were a bit more resilient. And we adapted quickly. And so I, th- I think one of the things that I like about what has happened through the process of 2020 is we had it in us to be better and to do something, to try some of these new things and to try different things. And uh, I mean, remote work as it is, we knew we could do remote work. We, we, we've done remote work, but like there was such a bias towards uh like take a position like demand generation Um, by and large, we'd have to have that gal or that guy in the office. Well, now we've proven over the last 10 months that gal or that guy, they don't have to be in the office, Mm -hmm. which opens up in a massive amount of opportunity. Opportunity is like for, as far as talent pool goes, all three sides of it. uh, Candidates can now, you know, we can look for a job in Paris. Right. Right. Paris, uh, if a headquartered company in Paris can now look at us as, and, and so employers have a better, have an open, a more open aperture of candidates. Candidates can open their aperture. 
And hiring managers, recruiters, sourcers, everybody can now look a little bit broader than they did before. Do recruiters have to change the way that the process looks because of that new talent pool? I mean, I know that we're doing interviews now via Zoom or or Skype or whatnot, but what changes maybe with technology or process to enable these companies to win in that talent pool now? So now what's great about that and, and, and you touched on is it's now even more competitive. So now that we have more of an opening and then more of an aperture, you're now more competitive with even more folks. So before, if we were just hiring for Caterpillar um, or if we were hiring for Best Buy, well, then, you know, we would hire people locally or people that wanted to move uh, and, and become local. Like they'd want to relocate. Well, now we don't have to think about that, but neither does every other company. So recruiters now, if they weren't already competitive, which they are, they're, they're even more competitive. And candidates are also now thinking about that and saying, well, my, my world just opened wide open. I can do a lot of different things. But So um, to answer the, the question about what changes, well, we, we have to find that talent. Um, I, we have to then, rec- you know, we have to then market to that talent, give them the opportunities, and then we have to then move them into a process that makes sense for them, and then get their interest, and then get them to apply to a job that that makes sense to them. Right, Jess, did you have a question? Yeah, William, I'm wondering if um, you know some of your expertise and our conversations that you have um, ever revolve around kind of this new generation that's going to be headed into the workforce and how they feel about remote working as compared to maybe the generations that exist today are they do you think they might be missing out on the opportunity to collaborate and develop relationships in person or do we feel as though they might be excited about this new wave of remote remote working as well so you so great question Jess uh, two two things come to mind one is candidates are asking the question right now of jobs I understand it's remote now will it be remote after covid post covid and that's an important if you're recruiting right now and and even if you're not recruiting if you're if you're thinking about your organization and how you're going to be thinking about work post covid uh, are you thinking about a hybrid model are you thinking about a, re- a return to the office? Are you thinking about some type of flex, et cetera? Like as an HR leader, you got to start thinking about that. If you aren't, aren't already thinking about those things, the return to work, if you will. Um, but candidates, uh, just candidates are asking that question right now of recruiters. They're asking that question, you know, because it, it says the number one search term in Indeed right now is remote work. <laughs> so, so people are searching based on remote work, um, but they also want to know not just is it remote work now, as in today, is it remote in the future? So, on one part uh, of your of your question, I would say it's definitely top of mind for them in terms of if I getting myself into a situation where it's remote up until June of next year. And then I'll be expected to then come to a location, wherever that may be. Um, the second part, in, in terms of collaboration, both my sons are, are Gen Z. So at 15 and 11, they're both in, squarely in that, in that. What's interesting about collaboration with digital natives, so this is the generation that never not had the internet. Okay, so 13 to about 38, somewhere in there. This is a generation that, like with millennials, half of millennials, they they can imagine a world or remember a world where there wasn't an internet. With digital natives, with Gen Z, they've always had Siri or they've had Alexa. They've had iPad since they were two. You know, they so collaboration to them is not the same type of collaboration as as maybe I or or, or the two of you would think of it. Like they collaborate. I took my sons to the doctor this morning uh, for a well check and they're playing a game called Among Us uh, on the way uh, to, to school for me to drop them off. And they're in the back seat 
basically playing a game. And if you know the game, it's, it's actually a really fun game. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and they were collaborating with each other. Like they're sitting right next to each other, both on their phones, both talking about who's going to, who's going to be, you know, out the imposter and they were collaborating and they were doing, you know, again, staring at a screen, talking to each other. And it's a different way of collaborating. Um, my 15 year olds, you know, he's out of school now. He's, he's actually in the living room and he's on, uh, you know, he's on, he's on his laptop playing a game and, and he's on discord and Twitch and literally collaborating with people all around the world, but just doing it in a different way. So that idea that I grew up with where we would be in a conference room or we would be in a, you know, offsite. Or something like that. I think I think people still can collaborate that way. So I don't want to kill that off, but I don't want to say that that's the only way to collaborate either. I think that yeah. I I think I think I think this this generation, as each generation, and again, we throw generation into this mix, but really it's also, you know, people have different work styles and you know personalities and all kinds of different job functions and industries. There's a lot of other components that kind of make up this, but Collaboration is ultimately it's outcome based. You know, there's an outcome that comes along with collaboration and that's the goal. So how you get to the goal becomes less important than the goal itself. Yeah. So essentially relationship building in person might not, might not feel as a necessity or might not feel like something that they need to kind of fill up their cup, like maybe previous generations have experienced. And I know I've experienced in my HR role and talking to peers and talking to business leaders that have indicated, you know, I never thought that I could be in a work from home person and and find that to be fulfilling or find myself feeling productive. And now those same people that that had those same sentiments are saying, I'm not really sure how I could go back to working in an office five days a week. So it's just it's interesting um, how I people love, have. Yeah, I love it. I love it because it it has. It's even gotten, uh, I think it's gotten us all to reconsider and rethink work in a good way um, and rethink, you know, what we need out of work, what, what we, you know, to thrive, what do we, what do we need? What drains us? You know, what, what builds us up? We we're rethinking that as we go along, which is good because I think, you know, COVID's horrible. Like the fact that people have died, like, like, okay, this is horrible period, hard stop. But if we think about the silver linings, we can think about how it's forced us to rethink. We were in a rut about work. We were in kind of a kind of a not a complacency, but we were in a in a rut of how we do things, and we were forced at gunpoint to rethink everything, like on a Tuesday. <laughs> it's it's everyone has to go home. And oh, by the way, the business still has to keep going and we have to thrive. And oh, by the way, you know, like, and we figured it out Mm -hmm. and yeah, it wasn't easy. Like we go back and we look at that time and it was stressful and all that stuff. But I, I like that it showed how resilient both HR professionals and recruiters are and can be when pushed. Now on the other side of it, we get to reimagine. You know, we, we get to actually do that innovative thing where we say, if we weren't doing it like this, how would we do it? And uh, I love that. I've, I've even in my own life, I was traveling, you know, pretty much every week. I'm not going to travel as much. I'm just not going to, and unless it's a location that I'd like to go to, or, <laughs> you know, there's a huge check involved. Yeah. I'm just not going to, I'm not just, I'm just I'm not, I've, I've been executive platinum on America airlines for as long as I care to think about it. Um, yeah, I'm okay with letting that go. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would have never, if you would have asked me this question last year, I would have like balked. Are you kidding me? I love my privileges. Like now I don't care if I don't get on a plane again in my lifetime, I'm all right mm-hmm. for business personal travel aside, but for business, I'm okay with that. So I think people are coming now on the flip side of that though, Jess, 
if if you're uh, a good friend of mine that I talked to this morning, she's an extrovert, and she's also got three kids. Her and her husband have three kids under under the age of five, so two in, two in diapers, and she's an extrovert. She can't wait to get back to the office. Like if she, if the office could open up tomorrow, she would be at the office, you know? So I, I don't want to, I don't want to think that the office is the enemy because the office isn't the enemy. It was, it was never the enemy. It's not, it shouldn't be the enemy in the future, but we should allow ourselves to think of the office a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So we talked about those talent pools and w- because it's opened up, some companies may be able to look for different types of, of people. Uh, you had a recent podcast that talked about building a talent profile of your best people. Does does that change now because of the world we're in? And even if it doesn't, can you talk a little bit about how you build that that profile, what tools sure. you can use and what you do with that data? Well, you, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, bias in, bias out. So I think as you think of those things, you have to make sure that you don't have some unintended biases or, or impact uh, that, that maybe you didn't, you know, you obviously didn't bake in and on purpose, but you want to make sure that as you open up those talent pools, you open up to everybody. And, and, and again, everybody internally, uh, if, we, if we think of internal mobility and everybody externally. And I like the idea and I've come around to this idea of just let everybody apply. Like, like it did, like take all that, those requirements. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to have a BA or a BS in so-and-so, or you have to have seven years of experience. It's uh, you know what? A lot of that stuff's arbitrary and has been arbitrary. And it's also been ways to, to, unfortunately it's been ways to keep people out of the organization. When, when really the, the, the goal is, can the person do the job? Like, are they competent and can they do the job? The job is an outcome and whatever that outcomes or outcomes, can they perform the job and can they do the outcomes? And now you add in the additional wonderful layer of from anywhere in the world. And so I, I think when you build those talent pools, you have to really think about making sure it's almost, you have to be really, really diligent about making sure that you understand the impact of everything of your jobs that you open up and make sure that you you want to include everybody build the, the biggest tent humanly possible let everyone in and and it sorts out when you when you think like that it all sorts out diversity inclusion belonging equity and equality sorts out when you when you create the biggest tent what but would you, you- yeah, Sorry to interrupt you there, but what, what would you say to a recruiter that's like, if I literally open this up to everybody, I'm going to have thousands of applications that I'm going to have to sift through and my recruiting team can support volumes of, of candidates for every requisition that I post. So, so flip that around and make that a sales conversation and, and ask yourself, if I had all these prospects... How would I ever be able to do my job? No salesperson living uh, or dead would ever say, I have too many prospects. Never heard it. Never said never. it. Never will. <laughs> <laughs> never heard it. Never said it. Or, and, and the same is true of recruiting. So what you need in recruiting and sales is you need qualifying instruments. You need, uh, you need great assessments. You, you've got great tools, uh, personality assessments, behavioral assessments. I just talked to the CEO of Plum, and they do, they do kind of a – it's a talent resiliency platform. So they kind of look at a combination of those types of assessments. You've got skills testing. So you can have as many of those people as you want, 10,000 people to apply to the job, and then you send them through a gauntlet of, a, of assessments and tools to then get it down to the right number of people. But instead of gating that at the beginning and, you know, in your job description that says you must have, well, why do we have those things? Mm-hmm. Let's take all that stuff out and then we'll find that out in the competency. 
we'll find yeah. out if they can do the job there. So, I mean, it's instead of throwing in a little bit of dirt and sifting it for gold, you're saying like, Hey, just throw all the dirt in there. And then on the back end, you can start sifting, sifting right. out to find the right people. When, when a company looks at their talent profiles and they decide this is the people we're looking for, do you see a lot of mistakes being made in identifying that profile? 100%. Because it may be, we, this is who we want to be, or this is who we think is best. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's based on a lot of biases that we're not that uh, publicly we're probably not comfortable talking about is sure. who did, who did the job before who's uh, all the, all the, all the hiring biases that, that uh, who's a lot like me, who do I mm-hmm. want to have a, have a beer with? You know, it's all these things. And again, we're not looking at it like, again, who can do the job and who's, who, who's competent. We, we're looking at, um, who who did the job last? That's actually a, a really interesting bias is who's the last person to do the job? They might have done a fantastic job, but they had a combination of skills that fit at that particular moment. And now we put a, a bias in hiring because we're trying to hire that gal or that guy. And and it closes all these doors. And and the goal in in, in recruiting should be and in interrogable ability is you open the doors of opportunity. You don't close the doors. You just open up all the doors and then those that can go through them, go through them. Mm-hmm. How is, you mentioned that you are, you work with companies to select vendors. Mm-hmm. Is that mainly on the recruiting side of things? No, that's all the way across. Uh, I've studied everything from sourcing the outplacement, and uh, so I'm just as skilled at payroll technology or performance management technology as I am at, at mm-hmm. ATSs, if you will. Um, and sometimes people just need help with a category, like a CRM. Sure. Or they're looking for you know programmatic ad buying, or they're or they're looking for a new way of doing 360 degree feedback, goal setting, something like that. So it's really kind of like a like a, a little narrow thing that they're looking at. We have to solve for this, this problem and, uh, helping them then understand, okay, that category has, you know, 800 players right? and, you know, here's the strata of those different players and how, here's how they interact with the other technology that you have. And I think that's one thing that helps HR when you have that conversation is, you know, you're building a stack of technology, generally speaking, you're building a stack of technology, uh, from sourcing the outplacement and, as best you can, those those technologies need to play well with each other. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that and understanding how data flows from, from application to application is also important. Yeah. But yeah, no, I I the recruiting stuff's easy just because for the last four years I've I've spent with recruiting daily. Um, but but I'm I'm comfortable talking, you know, about anything in, in HR tech. Yeah, so you've kind of seen the progression and how much has exploded in the HR tech world and not just for some of the the bigger main players of kind of full suite, but within every single category, there's so many options. And you're seeing companies go out and throw an RFP out to, you know, 15 different vendors. So I was curious and, and we don't need to spend too much time out, but I was curious to just to hear your feedback when you worked with companies as to how that process should look, what should they put priority on when they're, when they're looking at these solutions? So I have a Google doc that uh, has about a little bit over 26,000 HR and recruiting products in the world. Okay. And and, and I've been studying this for over 20 years, right? So if, 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 if every day I find something new, and then they can be little tiny things like a, a, a financial wellness play in Spain, right? Mm. Little big tiny things. Um, or it could be something big, you know, take SAP or take Oracle that has hundreds of, of products. So the thing is, if I'm confused and I study this day in and day mm-hmm. out, the average yep. practitioner in recruiting or HR has. I don't say that has no idea, but they're just not as knowledgeable about these products as, as, and and because they have a job to do, that's what they're doing. They've got their heads down actually doing the job. And so when they need to buy technology, I usually, I'm, I'm not a big fan of RFPs 
I don't like uh, spreadsheets driving decisions. I think that later on you can kind of get into a spreadsheet to help you understand what your needs are. But by and large, I'm not a big RFP person. I think the rating sites, I think, is an interesting way to understand what's out there and available to you. But 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 again, it's it's just like with candidates inviting 15 in. Why not invite as many in as possible to understand, again, your needs? If we're talking about OKRs, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of different solutions for OKRs, but it's it's finite. Well, let's let's invite all of those folks in. And, you know, we're a company with 5,000 employees. We've got, you know, 20 off or 20 offices in 20 countries. So we need it to be multilingual. You know, that's going to rule out some of those players. So because, they, you know, they're not multilingual. Okay. Or they don't handle companies with 5,000. Or, mm-hmm. you know, that's, maybe they handle companies that are really large, but not down to 5,000. So you can find the right group of people. And then then the goal is, to understand what you need out of the software uh, because, and, and no offense, Mike, but sales sales job is to make you excited about what you see. I call it jazz hands. So I'm doing jazz hands right now, but you can't see it. So when you see a demo of, of HR recruiting technology and you're not excited when you get off that demo, the salesperson failed. You're supposed to be excited by what you see. The, the, the harder part, is to understand what do we need? Not what what have I seen and fallen in love with, but what do we actually need? That's the harder part for TA and uh, HR is to actually just draw a circle around, here's the five things that we need. Let's make sure that the software does those five things right. exceptionally well. Um, I also believe in the power of re- referrals uh, and talking references and talking to people that have both bought that software and also people that have passed. So one of the things I ask uh, practitioners to do is when you talk to your salespeople and you really fall, if you've not only fallen in love with the software, but it does everything that you really want it to do. And you've, you know, you kind of got a, a real good feel for the team and the price and you know, all that stuff. Then what I want them to do is talk to the references that, that are given, but then I also want them to talk to some references of people that passed. And it's it's an odd request, and and salespeople by and large hate it, but but it's it's people that got far in the pipeline, got all the way to proposal, and then said no. And I want to talk to them, as a practitioner, I want to talk to them. I want to find out, you know, you obviously got to a pretty far in the process. You know what what was what 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 happened? Mm-hmm. And it could be something as simple as we lost budget. We we loved them absolutely loved them they would have they we we if we had the money we would have pulled the trigger on tuesday budget got pulled from us and we couldn't do the deal i want to know that right as a buyer i want to know those things i want to know that so one of the under leveraged assets uh that that hr and uh, uh ta practitioners have is each other i mean y'all are y'all are a part of a community. So you kind of get this bit, but just when just, you know, if she has to change payroll providers, God forbid, um, her first email or call should be to 10 or 15 of her peers. And, you know, Hey, we've got to, we've got to move off of, you know, ADP, who should we be looking at mm-hmm. and getting that feedback from people that are doing the job in the systems, et cetera. I, I think is good. You don't have to make your buying decision based on it, but it's good information to understand from your peer group. Under leveraged, totally mm-hmm. under leveraged, by the way. Yeah. And I mean, that fits into, I think, how people are buying these days with reviews and, and just, I mean, it's always been that way. You always call yep. your friend and ask, what do you think? And certainly powerful there. And I agree with everything. And even with the the sales stuff, right? <laughs> it, it, I mean, you know, in our in that industry too, it's there. It, the solutions are so deep that I think people try to stay high level, and when and if they don't go deep enough, um, they run into those issues six months down the road. And That's right. it, you know, it's important to know that going in. Um, so, kind of shifting gears on that, 
going back to, we were talking about remote work and how it looked in 2021. I saw, I saw a quote out there. I think it was, you know, from you or about you when we talked about work-life balance and, uh, it's something that you have an opinion on doesn't really, I don't know if you feel those two things exist, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've always been a hater of work-life balance. Um, just because I, I think it's a, a fallacy. Um, but I think 2020 has actually even proven me more. I've proven my stance more correct. It's work-life integration. You know, like, like at any moment we're on a podcast at any moment, our kids or loved ones or, 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 you know, family members that are visiting can walk in and interrupt us. Mm -hmm. And before we would have walled that stuff off, there's work and then there's play or, or everything that's not work. Right. And 2020 has proven to us that there is no work life balance. It's work-life integration, and these two are being thrown together. Now, that's there's some positives to that because it's we've also seen empathy uh, go through the roof uh, in a good way. Because you know when somebody you know you're on a call, a conference call, and somebody's baby's crying, they have to go and take care of their baby. You know, you you might have been a bit judgmental about that last year. Now, that's just normal. Like that's like, oh, okay, hey, no worries. We'll, we'll keep the conversation rolling while you're you're doing your bit. And when you come back, you know, we'll join in. Uh so the empathy is great. The downside or some of the downsides are mental health and mental, you know, wellness, uh, and making sure that people know how to turn off uh this integration when they need to. So when they need to actually shut down or or be away, then they they know how to do that. And so I think, you know, I think we, if we get back to a, a concept of work-life balance, I think we've failed. I think it's more of, we understand that work and life are integrated, deeply integrated with one another. And we need to give people the tools and resources to both, you know, help them with empathy, make sure that they understand what they're going through and what everybody else is going through and also help them, give them the tools uh, with mental health issues and wellness issues that derive from this integration. So it's not, it's not, it's not great. It's not like work, like integration is fantastic. It has its downsides. Uh, But to, to imagine a world where we go back to this separation between work and life, I or work life balance. I, I just don't, I don't, I never, th- I never believed in it. Uh, and I, and 2020 just made me believe in it less. I'm really interested to see how that all pans out. You know, I think to the point that you had made, William, about empathy, people have it right now because they are living in it too. You know, whether their kids are in a hybrid program or whether their school are shut right, shut down right now, or whether their kids are under, um, you know, the age of five and they're in a, a school or a daycare that closed, people are forced to have that empathy right now. But when schools open back up again and we go back to some form of normalcy, but people are still working from home, it's going to be interesting to see if that empathy continues beyond that point. And then um, I know I'm switching gears here a little bit, but you had made another point just about um, the work-life integration and working from home and when to shut it off. And I would say that um, that's tough. I think that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of us that have converted to this work from home life, you have to be really thoughtful about all right, I'm not just going to roll out of bed and fire up my computer and get going. You know, I'm going to stick to my morning routine of exercising or spending some time with my kids or going for a walk or enjoying my cup of coffee or whatever it is, you know, and not letting. And then again, at the end of the day, finding a time when it's appropriate to shut it down, not turn it back on again, because it's in the same room that you are. It's just in the room next door. Yeah. I've, I think, uh, I think, first of all, on the empathy side, I think uh, we lose if we lose that. 
like this is this has been a gift you know this has been a great gift that's been bestowed upon us that you know we start off calls by how are you doing you know, how's here's your family? How's everything going? <laughs> do you have do you have enough toilet paper in your house? Uh, and we end calls with you know, uh, you know, wash your hands. You know, make sure you wear a mask. You know, take care of yourself. Yeah, those things might change, but the idea that we're in each other's lives, and it's not just this box, this this walled off box stuff about work. It's okay. Like, it's okay to be in their life if, if you know, again, if willing participants, right? If it's okay for the other person, it's okay for you, and, and you've kind of acknowledged that, then, it, then it's okay. Let's keep that empathy uh, and, and organizational empathy. Um, I think on the downside is we have to become more self-aware of what drains us and what drives us. And we've got to be able to understand that, that that if something's draining us, we got to turn it off. And maybe that's uh, a process. Maybe that's a you know um, a, a working relationships that might be a bit dysfunctional right now. We've got to figure that out because, and and again on the on the good side, that drives us you know to succeed. We've got to then figure out those levers too, and which ones to pull. So it's there's a bit of self-awareness that we haven't really talked about, uh, at least overtly in the past, about, hey, we want our employees to be more self-aware. You know, we want them to be more empathetic. Like th- these are things, these are hardcore changes in philosophy, business philosophy. It's like we want employees to be more empathetic with our customers, with each other, you know, et cetera. And we want them to be more self-aware so that they can turn those things off when it becomes too much, when they feel like they're hitting that wall before they hit that wall, that they're self-aware enough to go, you know what? I need to take a couple days off. I need to, I need to go for a walk. I need to, I need to invest in myself. I need to go see a movie. I need to go do something, whatever it is. But in order to do that, you gotta be, you gotta be self-aware. So we might, as, as HR professionals, we might have to figure out programmatically how to support self-awareness, yeah. which is not, or, or empathy, which is not necessarily something we've got an EAP for, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, it's, I, I, I hope that the return to normalcy includes empathy and self-awareness. Yeah. Well, I I think we were going to maybe try to talk a little bit about PTO today, but that statement is so on point, William, because we have seen that uh, employees are taking less paid time off while, while this pandemic has been going on. So I don't know if that goes to your point about the lack of self-awareness. I don't know if that leads to people being concerned about loss of the job. So I'm just going to keep working harder so I can earn myself a role within my company or maybe I, a, I a little bit it. of, I don't have any place to go. So I, why am I going to take them off? I'm just going to keep working. I'm I'm in quarantine. Where am I going? Or it's yeah. winter. Where am I going? Um, right. I, think it, I think it's a mixture of all those things. I think definitely the economic conditions that we're all under, I think the quarantine, uh, okay, we're all not going on a Disney cruise, you know, during the summer. Okay, that's not going to happen. So, uh, but also, you know, I mocked PTO um, because years ago I had an ad agency and we had, you know, this was in at the time, 2006 or so, avant-garde, this idea of unlimited PTO, right? This idea where you just say, hey, you need to take off, take off. And it was a great, it was a great idea. It's like if you've ever read the Communist Manifesto, when you read it, it's fantastic on paper. It's really fantastic. I mean, it's amazing. Like we're all just going to have the same stuff. Okay. Problem is, is you add humanity to it and it blows apart. Same thing with PTO. Okay. It's the exact same concept. What happens with PTO is people feel guilt and shame for taking time off. Whereas when you tell them, previous to that or in in other companies that don't have an unlimited PTO strategy, you have four weeks of PTO. You can use sick days or vacation days the same, but you have four weeks. That's it. Or three weeks or whatever the box is. It's finite. This is what you have. 
people are okay with that mm-hmm. because there's no guilt or shame. It's like, okay, well, I can, I got, I got to take, like, it doesn't roll over. If I don't take it, then I lose it. There's no guilt. There's no shame. And then you add the things just that you've already brought up, the economic conditions, quarantine, uh, the potentiality of losing your job or feeling like you're going to lose your job, which is just as, just as bad. Yeah, of course, it's not shocking that that people aren't taking time off. That's, mm-hmm. Nobody should, should be shocked by that. And I, I, I put it on social the other day because I was mocking it because I called it PTO. I called it pretend time off uh, because that's what it is. I think if we want people to take time off, I think I think especially during 2020 and even into 2021, I think we may need to make it mandatory. Mm-hmm. I think and- we actually have to dictate them to take off i know even for myself with unlimited pto and i would imagine it's like this for a lot of people when you do have that unlimited pto and and you're telling somebody hey i think i'm going to take next week off but i'll be around you know i'll still be answering something like (laughs) i have this hard time to just it's it's not really off off. you're not really off because i because it's free to me yeah because it's just given like i can do it anytime so i feel this like responsibility to say hey if anything important comes up though i will take care of it Nah. And whereas when, when I know that I, I'm pulling it from a bucket, I yep. never felt that way. It's Not like, I'm, I'm submitting this and I'm gone. Yeah. You know, so I think best part vacation, of it, the best, the, sorry, my, the best vacation okay. you can ever take is a vacation where you don't take your phone or your laptop. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That's and a true vacation. I, I don't, I think unlimited PTO comes from a good place. It does. It does. I think. I think where it gets hung up and maybe you agree or disagree is, is that maybe the frontline manager or just the immediate manager of they need to be trained on this and say, look, it's a hard thing. And when somebody comes to you and says, they're going to take some time off, hold them accountable to take that time off and let them know that's okay. And because I think that's where the, you don't know how they feel about you. And we've talked about this on other podcasts where depending on your manager, some people really won't take it and then some people will. And you, you need to, as a manager, you have to respect that boundary. And, and, and again, there's nothing so critical. I mean, let's be honest. There's nothing so critical that you really have to respond to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we'd like to think that way because our egos will allow us to think that way. Like, Oh my God, we have to, I have to be plugged into the, you know, all of the decisions or the things that are the most critical, which really the building could burn down. And you know what? You'd still have a job or you'd still come back and you'd figure it out. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing that critical. That's all ego. Yeah. And I think you're, you've are you nailed another part of this. Uh, a tentacle of this is leadership and management needs to let people be off the grid mm-hmm. and be away. And and I actually, once I flipped my mentality around PTO, I would tell them it, it's kind of a bit from, from Pulp Fiction, but when you're gone, be gone. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't want an email from you. I don't want a text from you. You're in Bali. I, I've, you know, I'll see photos when you get back. Like, I don't, I don't, we don't need to, we don't need to interact. Mm-hmm. And if something's critical, you know what? The Monday when you return, well, we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because it's critical, but we don't need to talk about it in the interim. And I think that is a leadership and management thing, Mike. I think you're right. We, I think a lot of what we've talked about today boils down to just agility and flexibility that's come up now within the HR role. And you mentioned it, I think, before we hit the record button, but you talked about kind of radical flexibility and I, I kind of want to end with that and just get your thoughts on what that looks like for 2021. And even as the pandemic comes to a conclusion, hopefully, fingers crossed, that that flexibility is actually maybe a good thing. And we can use that to our advantage. And can, can you just talk more about that? Yeah, I think it's I think I think there's one of the things that we've proven ourselves that we can do things that we probably didn't know that we could do. And we've proven to ourselves that we can be more flexible than maybe we even thought we could be. Now the goal in 2021 and, and beyond is to keep that and, and really look at being more flexible. So 
um, both in recruiting and in HRs, how do we bring more flexibility to decision-making? How do we think more outside of the box, not less outside of the box? But, you know, again, that, that innovation statement, I think it came from Billy Bean. Uh, if we weren't already doing it this way, how would we do it? That's a wonderful way to reimagine how you can do things and how you can be flexible. And so instead of looking backwards at how we did it or how we've done it forever, we look at, okay, what does this person in front of me need? And how can I be flexible and take care of them in a way that, you know, I haven't really considered before. So for the, for the practitioners, it's, it's, you know, it's all inspiring because it's like, there's no rules. It's the wild West. You can be as flexible as you want to be. And it also kills off that, that uh, I think the, the misnomer of rigidity that, that especially is hit HR where people think of HR in very rigid terms and it doesn't have to be that way. We've proved, we've proven it to ourselves that it doesn't have to be that way. And it, and it doesn't have to be that way when, COVID's over. You think that's because HR is kind of process driven? And I mean, some of it, some of it's compliance and yeah. some of it is also a love. Uh, 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 it's actually a, kind of a misplaced love of best practices and treating everyone the same. Mm. And so, you know, you know, on one side, one of the jobs of HR is to treat everybody the same so that we don't have inequities. The downside of that is, you, is it, it boxes you in flexibility-wise. Mm -hmm. when, when you need to be flexible, you can't because you're worried about the slippery slope of, of not treating people the same. So some of that rigidity is built in and has been built in you know, since the personnel days of, of compliance. And so there's been some of that, uh, but, but, but also some of it is self-inflicted. Mm -hmm in that we we've put ourselves through this this well we have to treat you know we got to treat sally like we treat jane we got to treat jane like we treat billy and it's like yeah actually you don't mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you 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 have to be fair right and you have to be equitable but you don't have to treat people the same yeah that's a that's a fallacy but it's it's one of the things that we got to undo and and 2020 has <laughs> thrown us it's thrust us into this and uh in a good way in a good way, flexibility has been kind of pushed upon us in recruiting in HR, uh, and I, I hope it stays. I hope we become really adept, and you use the word agile, which I love. I hope we become really adept at understanding flexibility. Yeah. I would just add to that point that you made, William, about treating people the same. <clears throat> it's also about perceptions that business leaders have had about what roles are capable of being more flexible than others? And I think that this remote environment has brought a lot of good information and knowledge to specific job roles, like maybe an office manager or somebody that's been more of um, administrative base, like, oh, well, they would definitely need to be in the office. And that those roles have proven to be just as productive in a remote environment as well. 100%. That perception of the, the board, the C-suite, leaders in general, um, it's, it's, it's based in biases. It's based in experience. It's based in history. And, you know, again, if COVID hadn't happened, we'd be having this podcast not talking about flexibility. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so hopefully, and, and, I, and I've seen actually, I've talked to a lot of CEOs about this. They see the organization differently now. Like they see work differently. They see employees and outputs. They see it differently. Now we're all, you know, worried, not the right word, but we're all thinking about, well, what happens when? And, and, it, and I think that rightfully so we are, we are probably worried about the, that, you know, will we return to the exact same bad habits? Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope not. I hope not. I hope everyone's learned what we needed to learn uh, through this process. Yeah. Well, Mike and I are actually an example of that because prior to COVID, we were doing all of our podcasts in person and they were with, you know, local 
people to the Twin Cities. And we've uh, interviewed lots of guests during this pandemic that are not local to the Twin Cities. And we're going to continue doing that. I don't anticipate that even after COVID, we might meet in person. Yeah, this, I mean, it's not only has this broadened our ability to bring more guests to our listenership, but it's provided Mike and I and our guests more flexibility in the time that we meet and Mm. day of the week and et cetera, et cetera. So 100%. Yeah. Well, this has been so good, William. Thank you so much for your time today and for your knowledge. And we're excited to get this episode out to our listeners. And can you tell our listeners where they can connect with you? You know, if you just type William Tincup into Google, you'll you'll find me. <laughs> I'm 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 uh, probably one of the more easier five people to find on the internet. Okay, is there a place that you really like to connect with people, like LinkedIn or? I'm uh, I'm agnostic. I I like Instagram just as much as I like LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I, okay, I, I treat all of them the same. I love all my children equally. <laughs> <laughs> so Twitter, seriously, wherever someone's comfortable, Pinterest doesn't really matter to me wherever you're comfortable i'm comfortable i don't yeah i don't force anybody into uh into into those things yeah cross platforms well it's been super insightful so glad we we're able to get you on william thank you so Great. much and you're uh maybe we can do it again yeah i'd, I'd love to. to circle back in the new year and and see if the pandemic proved you right in any other ways other than uh work life integration <laughs> well i it'll be interesting it'll be interesting and you know what from from I mean this is historic right we can go back thousands of years but from something bad can come something good yeah right so hopefully we will learn some things from from this terrible uh, year in COVID in general and right. uh, and and hopefully there'll be some really positive things that we take and we keep absolutely well thanks again so much for being on yeah absolutely. thank you absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next episode.